welcome to Note Doctors. My name is Paul. My name is Jen. My name is Ben. And we are your hosts. We are all university music theory instructors who are passionate about music theory and music theory instruction. In this podcast, we will be talking about all things theory with some of the best music theory teachers in the country. If you want to know more about music theory and the most effective and innovative ways to teach it, this is the podcast for you. Hello and welcome to Note Doctors, the music theory and pedagogy podcast. Welcome to season three, everybody. We made it. All right. It's pretty exciting. Right, guys? You're there? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Woohoo. Season three. Woo-hoo! Season three. Season three. All right. So we're really pumped about all of our guests that are going to be coming on this season, um, sharing their insight and their knowledge with us. We have a, a special episode here because we have a husband and wife duo that are going to be talking to us about uh, their research in growth mindset uh, in the music theory classroom specifically. And so we are really pleased to have Dr. Shanna Southern Dobbs and Benjamin Dobbs with us. Um, And Jen, you're going to read Shanna's bio and then uh, Ben, you'll take uh, Ben's bio. All right. So Shanna Southern Dobbs is associate professor of psychology and principal investigator of the stress and cognition lab at Lander University in Greenwood, South Carolina. She earned her PhD in experimental psychology with a minor field in educational psychology at the University of North Texas in 2016. Her primary research interests focus on post-traumatic stress, autobiographical memory for stressful experiences, and the role of cognitive factors in shaping trauma outcomes. Dr. Souther Dobbs also routinely engages in scholarship of teaching and learning research. And Benjamin Dobbs is assistant professor and coordinator of music theory and composition at Furman University in Greenville, South Carolina. He earned his PhD in music theory with a related field in music history, from the University of North Texas in 2015. His research interests center broadly on the development of musical style and musical thought during the Protestant Reformation in Middle and North Germany. Benjamin also studies the relationships among students' beliefs about learning, learning behaviors, and learning outcomes in music theory classes. It's really about the theories that we all kind of hold internally about our own intelligence and our abilities. And the original um, kind of language that I understand Weg used was an incremental versus an entity sort of theory about those abilities. Entity means it's like part of me. I am a good musician. I am a strong performer. I am good at music theory or I'm not, (laughs) right? And then incremental is more like um, that's a a space where I have room to grow. I think we've probably all either had students or periods in our life where we're like, man, I am am teaching these students that they can't do music theory and I hate that. Um, So I started to examine pretty early on uh, in my time at Furman to find ways that I thought would encourage my students uh, from an I can't do this mindset to an I can't do this yet mindset. So hello and welcome again to our episode. We're really excited because this is actually a first for us. We have two guests who are both academics 
and they both live in the same house. Uh, we are so excited. I don't think that's happened before yet. Uh, no, I don't think so. And so we are so excited to have Benjamin and Shanna with us. But of course, we always like to ask our guests a little bit about their background, kind of how they got into their uh, respective fields. And so, you know, we can talk to you, Benjamin, about how you got into music theory and Shanna, how you got into psychology and then who wins most of the arguments at home? Because I was kind of thinking about this. You know, you have a music theorist who's very logical, can create a good, concise argument, but you also have a psychologist who can get kind of underneath about kind of like, all right, well, what kind of trauma or, you know, what's really going on there? So I don't really know who would win that argument. So whoever wants to go first can go ahead. Yeah. So uh, guys, thanks so much for having us on the, on the pod. We're really excited to speak with y'all today. Um, Let's see. So I started playing piano at a really young age. Uh, I think that's a pretty typical story. I I was playing piano at uh, age five. I think that was a fifth birthday present was uh, piano lessons. Uh, And then uh, I, you know, did band in school and I grew up in a really small town. Uh, Actually, I grew up on a farm outside of the small town. And as far as I knew, uh, I wanted to be a musician. I knew that, but all I knew is that, uh, you know, professions available to me were either to be a, uh, a church music director, but that wasn't a full-time gig. Uh, you could be a uh, piano teacher, but you had to be with apologies in my mind, in my 10 year old mind, you had to be uh, an old lady to be a piano teacher, <laughs> um, apologies, uh, or you could be a band or choir director. And I was a band person. So I went to college thinking I was going to be a high school band director, did music ed for a couple of years. And then I remember in uh, sophomore theory, I think it was, uh, third or fourth semester, uh, we had an analysis project that was uh, a form analysis of a Mozart symphony. I think my group uh, analysis was uh, Symphony 39, maybe. And I remember just falling in love with it and working on it like all night long and thinking, man, it would be really cool if I could just do this for a living. So I pivoted from music ed and uh, landed in the music theory world. And uh, I was really fortunate that that happened pretty early in my uh, educational career. And uh, I've been there ever since. Great. And you, Shanna? Yes. Um, so I always really enjoyed science and math in school. I was good at it. Um, I also grew up in rural Arkansas. So Ben and I have known each other for a very long time. <laughs> uh, we met way back in band in school, actually. Uh, so our school did a really good job of covering the basics. We had good science and math and English classes. Um, but I was never exposed to social and behavioral science. I'm so jealous of my students who took a psychology class in high school because um, I didn't have that exposure. So I didn't know until I got to college and was doing my pre-med biology chemistry major thing. I took general psychology as a gen ed class and the heavens opened and I realized, oh, this whole time I have been a behavioral scientist. Um, looking back on how I thought about people and the observations that I made about the world around me. So I'm really glad that I had that opportunity to, to have that realization because um, my life really changed after, after that semester. Um, so yeah, psychology is all about applying the tools of science so I am a scientist um, to the study of human behavior, cognition, and emotion, which is just the right space for me. Mm-hmm. Awesome. I love how both of you entered college 
maybe adjacent to where you would end up, but it was like having an experience, having a class, having something like that, that opened your mind to what's possible. Mm Because I think a lot of times uh, my Dean and I have talked many times about the fact that most of my theory majors start out as something else. And then they realize, oh, music theory is a thing that exists and I like it, you know? So it's often true. I mean, that's what happened to me. I didn't know when I was registered for music theory one, I was like, what is that? So, you know, now, now I should point I out that, that Shanna has a background uh, in college music as well. <laughs> oh. I, I you mentioned this, Shanna. Yeah, I was a music <laughs> minor, actually. Um, so I was in band all through school. I actually was playing saxophone in jazz and symphonic bands while I was working on my master's degree in counseling. <laughs> Um, so, I mean, I'm, I'm a musician, an amateur musician, um, now like church choir is the lane that I stay in pretty much. Um, <laughs> I'm a music theory dropout. Let's turn this into a true confession podcast for a second. <laughs> yeah. I, I had finished all of my coursework for my music minor and was in my very last music theory class. And I was like, this minor was for fun and this is not fun. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I bounced. I <laughs> and then I married a music theorist, so you know. <laughs> right. I I think when you told me that you were dropping your music minor, you got very serious and 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 said, you know, uh, Benjamin, I I have to tell you something. I'm dropping out of my music theory class, uh, and it was. Uh, I mean, it was just fine, but I think you were a little nervous about telling me that. <laughs> Uh-huh. But it turned out okay. that could have been a done deal. The relationship's yeah, over. Yeah. You know? Sorry, but bye. Dude, once you got past that, you knew the rest right. is going to be history. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> well, we're really excited to chat with both of you about kind of a project that you're currently kind of working on uh, about growth mindset, which is one of those kind of buzzwords. I think within the past few years, that has been thrown around all levels of education. Uh, but would you kind of start our conversation just with kind of telling us really kind of what growth mindset is um, to you and why is it important for college instructors to understand what that is? Yeah. So before we dive in, uh, I have a request and that's that if you are uh, in our uh, listening audience and you are an undergraduate student who is currently participating or thinks you might participate in our study, uh, would you mind closing this episode and listening, uh, finishing up at a later date? It's just going to have to be a cliffhanger, uh, but we don't want to influence any of your uh, responses and participation if you happen to be participating in our study. Uh, So that's my uh, small request. (laughs) <laughs> get get out of here uh, undergrad right. tw students who might be trying to get extra credit from me or something all right so now that they've all left and uh, no one is listening anymore now let's go into it <laughs> yeah so mindset has been around for a while in the field of psychology and then of course branched out into different educational spaces um So in digging into the research literature, of course, we have to point to psychologist Carol Dweck. She's the person who really came up with this framework. And um, when we dig down to the heart of it, um, Paul mentioned that things kind of get oversimplified sometimes when a concept kind of catches hold. Um, And that kind of has happened with mindset. But if we dig down to the kind of original research on it, it's really about the theories that we all kind of hold internally about our own intelligence and our abilities. 
and that can be abilities in kind of any domain. And so it's what, what are the beliefs that we have about our intelligence and our abilities? And the original um, kind of language that I understand Dweck used was an incremental versus an entity sort of theory about those abilities. Entity means it's like part of me. Um, I am smart. I am a good musician. I am a strong performer. I am good at music theory or I'm not, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? And then incremental is more like um, that's a, a space where I have room to grow. I can improve. It is possible for me to, with practice, with effort, to get better at that thing. Um, and then over time, the language has kind of evolved. We typically know this now as a growth mindset, which is akin to that um, incremental kind of theory. Um and fixed mindset, which is akin to that um, entity kind of theory. And um, unfortunately, as we have kind of adopted this terminology and this idea in educational spaces, it has tended to get a little oversimplified. It's fantastic that we're talking about it and thinking about it. Um, But as a psychological scientist, I'm, I'm always drawn to the messiness, the nitty gritty of it. And that's kind of what we're getting into with our research. Uh, Mindset really entered music theory conversations, at least uh, in publications and in research. About 2015, 2016, we start to see several uh, theorists starting to talk about mindset and its role in uh, students' outcomes and performances in music theory uh, classes. Um, uh, Tim Jeanette, uh, Megan Naxer, Jan Miyake, Garrett uh, Michelson have all written either about mindset or uh, or growth or mastery learning. So either mindset or mindset adjacent topics. Uh, that's really only been in the last uh, five to seven years or so. Um, and these authors have really provided us with some fantastic um with some fantastic tools to hopefully encourage growth mindset, uh, some some uh, assessment practices or some praise practices, uh, some study and uh, and practice practices that have uh, hopefully fostered uh, growth mindset among their students. Um, and then our work is going to support this really great work, hopefully, by taking a step back and helping to establish a baseline understanding of mindset in music theory classes, providing that quantitative support to uh, that excellent uh, pedagogical framework that uh, that several authors have started to work uh, with and, and talk about. I think that's really good. I actually read the mindset book several years ago. Um, a friend recommended it to me, and it's the version of the book that's not necessarily academic. She wrote kind of like a you know, popular, just buy it at Barnes and Noble version of her research on mindset, but I found it to be really transformative. And um, I think I realized as musicians, in many ways, we are often spoken to with a lot of fixed mindset, so to speak, language, like you're so talented or, you know, what a great horn player you are, or I didn't, I don't think you should sing on your own, maybe just in a choir, right? Like all of these sort of things that feel very personal and feel like they're tied to some set amount of talent that we have. And so after I read the book, it really made me think both about my own approaches to things that I try that are new um, 
trying to be more open-minded, like you can improve at anything that you work at, but it also changed the way that I talked to my students. Um, so I, I went from being not super conscious necessarily about how I praise my students to being very conscious of praising things like effort and ability and of always offering feedback to everyone, even really strong students, because strong students can still grow. Um, and weak student, students need to hear other people receive feedback that they feel are maybe better than them. So it, it definitely has changed my teaching. So that makes me ask, how has interacting with growth mindset changed the way that you teach in your classrooms? Yeah, so I really became interested in in mindset when I first arrived at Furman. Uh, so that's where I'm at, and I've got I arrived here in 2017. And Furman is a uh, it's a good school. We've got great students, hardworking students, uh, pretty high achieving students who have always probably made A's uh, or B pluses in school. And then when they got to Furman, which is a rigorous school, you know, maybe that wasn't the case, especially in their music theory classes, uh, where theory was something that was quite challenging for them. And so these students who have always gotten A's are all of a sudden getting homework assignments back uh, or, or tests or quizzes where maybe they got a C or maybe they got a D. Um, and I really noticed that my assessment, though it wasn't my intention, my assessments were convincing students that they couldn't do music theory, which was really heartbreaking, right? I think we've probably all either had students or periods in our life where we're like, man, I am, I am teaching these students that they can't do music theory, and I hate that. Um, so I started to examine pretty early on uh, in my time at Furman, I started to examine my teaching practices uh, to find ways that I thought would encourage my students uh, from an I can't do this mindset to an I can't do this yet mindset, but I can soon or with hard work uh, or, or with a lot of effort and practice and the right kinds of practice. So that's really how I got into mindset. Um, and some examples of things that I started doing, uh, I developed a homework redo policy that has kind of shifted and revolved over the year, uh, evolved over the years into a pretty robust uh, assignment policy where students turn in homework, I provide feedback, I get it back to them, they can revise and resubmit uh, and receive points back. And the goal here is to encourage students continued engagement with their homework and their assignments and their assessments. Uh, and so I also offer multiple chances on quizzes um, and, and writing and other sorts of things to, to keep them from taking a piece of paper, uh, or, or now I do everything digitally, but from getting a file back, uh, looking at a grade that they're not happy with and tossing it in the trash. I don't want that to happen. I want them to look at that grade, look at that feedback and say, all right, uh, so I did all of this pretty well, um, but here are some things that I can do better or differently. Uh, and on the homework, when I return it to them, I make some notes. I don't correct. Uh, I make some notes. Think about this, or uh, there are parallel fifths somewhere in this vicinity. Go find them and fix that. Uh, so that hopefully students are continuing to engage with their work and moving from, man, I, I just, I can't avoid parallel fifths to, uh, well, I'm going to avoid parallel fifths next time. That's great, Ben. And honestly, I have to say, I read the original Carol Dweck study and it was a little bit Greek to me, just to be honest with both of you, especially Shanna, here's my confession. I felt like I understood it, but I did come away with it thinking, 
okay, so now what, you know? So I'm just so glad to hear like what you're doing. And it does remind me a lot of what Jan Miyaki said here on, on her episode with us. So it's so glad to see, and so glad, congratulations again to Jan on president elect of the SMT. Yeah. But uh, yeah, connecting back to that and trying to figure out how do we actually apply this and then to connect obviously with a psychologist and say, whoa, oh my goodness. Now we're really making groundbreaking strides because we have a connection to that kind of original research. And also we can apply it exactly to music theory. And gosh, we know we need this because music theory is just, oh, it's such a right position for our field to be in, to, to make this step forward and have it um, blossom, you know, as a result of your, your project. I'm going to forward it to all my students, definitely. Awesome. Um, so I hope we get a lot of participants. I can't guarantee they'll respond. They don't usually respond that well to my emails, but uh, maybe they will to yours. I hope so. It's a universal problem, I think. Right. Well, there's an Amazon. <laughs> there are three Amazon gift cards up for grabs. So. There you go. Prizes. So Ben, oh, you've kind of teased us a little bit, but about this project. So uh, Shannon and Benjamin, can you tell us a little bit about what this research study is? Yeah, so uh, we're actually doing two studies right now. Uh, we started a study about uh, a year ago. We launched it last fall, and this is confession time for me. Um, so as I developed that homework redo policy and my uh, quiz, uh, multiple attempt quiz uh, policy, uh, I was really jazzed about it. And I thought, you know, uh, in line with all of those great uh, music theory articles that I was reading, I'm really do doing something that's going to foster great uh, improvements and changes in growth mindset. I'm going to encourage growth mindset. And I came home uh, and I was talking with Shanna about it, super jazzed. And Shanna said, but does it work? <laughs> We're theorists. It doesn't have to work. You know, we theorize, right? Yeah, well, I'm the theorist and Shanna is the scientist. So, I mean, she she sort of, you know, she came at me, bro. Um, and that Gently. got us to talking about how, how do we know whether or not our teaching practices are are achieving what we hope they're achieving, uh, especially yeah. when we're working with an interdisciplinary concept like mindset. How do we know? Uh, and so uh, uh, that's where uh, Shanna and I started this conversation uh, and that's where we're headed now. And we actually, because we're both educators, I mean, we talk a lot, you know, about our work and um, shared interests and, so my minor field for my PhD work is educational psychology, which is a really good complement um, to my uh, training as an experimental psychologist. And a thing that I feel frustrated about sometimes as a professional educator is that it's not uncommon for me to have the, a realization that even things that I do, but things that we do in our educational practice is based in intuition. You know, it seems mm -hmm. like this should work, right? It seems that if I talk to my students in this way, that should improve or foster growth mindset. Mm -hmm. um, and educational practice is just kind of rife with that sort of thing. Um, and there are some particular practices that we haven't actually examined carefully until relatively recently, like don't get me started on learning styles and teaching to different <laughs> learning styles. Like mm -hmm. Jen and I have had this conversation before. Mm -hmm. So um, that's a whole other episode. Um, <laughs> so 
this idea of like, but does it work? That that's not, um, as <laughs> some people would take that as like almost a combative kind of question. <laughs> like, what, what do you mean? Does it work? Of course it works. But as a curious scientist, I, I ask that question with enthusiasm, with enthusiasm, with excitement, like, let's find out, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, last early last summer, so, you know, a year and some four months ago, we started talking about ways to see if my homework reduce policy specifically was, in fact, fostering a growth mindset. And so we designed a study with my sophomore students at Furman. That's what I'm uh, teaching right now at Furman. I designed a study to look at their mindset and any changes in mindset over the course of the entire year. Uh, So I teach uh, theory three and four. um, And over the course of the entire year, uh, we checked in with students at the beginning of the first semester, end of the first semester, beginning of the second semester, end of the second semester, to see where their mindset was in at each of those points in both both written theory and in oral skills uh, to see if, well, maybe maybe their mindset is the same in those different domains. Maybe it's different in those different domains and maybe their mindset is differently malleable in those different domains. Um, So we measured mindset and its uh, change uh, or not over the course of the year. And then we're looking to see if it's correlated with their participation in the homework redo policy. Uh, And our hypothesis is that students who have a higher level of growth mindset are more likely to take advantage of the homework redo policy. And then also students who have, who take advantage of the homework redo policy at a higher rate uh, will see a larger level of growth mindset. We've done some preliminary data analysis, uh, and our results have been a little bit, not disappointing, but a little bit frustrating. Furman is a small school. Out of two sections of music theory last year, I had a total of 17 students uh, in two sections, um, which is fantastic for building close teaching relationships, uh, but is absolutely terrible uh, for collecting quantitative data and for drawing conclusions of this sort. Uh, So we are are going to continue to do that study, uh, that study this year and probably next year too. So for a couple more years, uh, just to see if we can get our uh, our participant numbers way up, and so that we can start to see whether some of the shifts in mindset, which we did see some shift in growth mindset, some increase in growth mindset, but with one exception, it was all uh, statistically insignificant. Uh, so we we hope that some larger numbers will show us either that uh, it is in fact significant or that it's not. Uh, and and both of those, you know, if it is significant, that's fantastic. If it's not significant, then that's also important because maybe we can stop doing all of these things uh, that we're putting a lot of effort in to change growth mindset. Maybe it's just not, maybe we can't affect that. Um, it's important to know that is sort of the scary part of turning the scientific uh, tool uh, inward and back on ourselves, right? That's, that's a little terrifying, but you know what? If my teaching practices aren't effective, I want to know that. Um, So that's our study that we started last year and that we're continuing. Uh, That study we launched with the assumption that mindset was malleable, with the assumption that mindset is malleable. So now uh, Shanna convinced me that we needed to take a step back, especially after we looked at that uh, preliminary preliminary data. We needed to to take a step back and to say, is mindset malleable? Um, So Shanna, can you talk to us? 
about some of the, yeah, some of the research that, that there is about mindset malleability? Yes. Yes. So the kind of the short answer to that question is mindset malleable, broadly speaking, is yes. There is, you know, quite a bit of evidence that the answer to that question is yes. Um, much of that research has been conducted in K through 12 settings. And um, there's enough research now that it's getting pretty nuanced. And so, you know, it's not so simple, basically. And I mean, that's true in like every educational intervention, essentially. Uh, it depends, <laughs> is my favorite thing to say, <laughs> basically. <laughs> As and an undergraduate person. student's favorite thing to hear. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Actually, I say that a lot in my psychology classes. I'm like, you psychology majors can always get away with answering a question. It depends. And they're like, cool. And I go, but wait, you have to follow that up with some sort of substantive, <laughs> you know, commentary. Oh, okay. <laughs> um. So is mindset malleable? Yes, there's evidence, a lot of evidence from K through 12. And it kind of depends on like, you know, what you're doing and a lot of other factors, unfortunately, the the educational environment. Um, And so in our study that that Benjamin mentioned a few minutes ago, we are also measuring quite a few other variables like class size and institutional settings and those kinds of things um, to see what might be related to that. Um, there's less evidence from the, the higher education setting, although there is a fair bit, and most of that is in STEM settings, um, like science and math. And so we, we were not able to find, I believe this is correct, any like quantitative studies um, in the field of music theory specifically, um, kind of asking that question, is mindset malleable? Um, so we, we need to do it. We need to measure it. Yeah. So, so mindset is broadly speaking malleable uh, in K-12 situations and in some STEM situations, it looked like it is. Uh, but, you know, we haven't examined that from a quantitative perspective in music theory classes. So that's really the, you know, uh, the base level question that we're hoping, hoping to ask or to answer uh, with this big study that we have just launched. You might have gotten an email from me about it today, or you might in the coming days um, uh, about uh, recruiting participants uh, from all over. So we are hoping to run this uh, study with participants from universities uh, across the country, across the world, uh, at big schools, small schools, private schools, public schools, big class sizes, uh, small class sizes. Um, we want to know about mindset uh, and mindset malleability in music fundamentals courses or in different points throughout the core sequence, you know, third, third semester, fourth semester, or in an upper level uh, theory elective, you know, in a counterpoint class or a form analysis class. Uh, we are focused on undergraduate, so this is not AP, this is not before uh, college, and this is not graduate student. Um, but still, we're looking at that, you know, four, five, six year chunk uh, when, you know, from, from music fundamentals in college until upper level electives to see if mindset is malleable in those different contexts. Because it could be that mindset malleability changes throughout the educational life cycle of an undergraduate student. And all of that is really important for informing our 
pedagogical practices as music theorists, knowing, you know, hey, my student is at this level, and I know that their mindset is uh, is really susceptible uh, to, to malleability. Or, hey, you know, I've got students at this level, and their mindset's pretty fixed by now. So I actually am not going to worry about... Um, fostering growth mindset too much. I'm going to turn my attention toward other uh, things that have a greater efficacy for achieving, achieving the learning outcomes that, that I want to achieve. Uh, so that's our goal is to establish this baseline understanding of, uh, of mindset and mindset malleability. With this study, we are asking participants, um, we're asking faculty members to recruit their students uh, to participate. And then we're going to ask students to fill out a survey at the beginning of a term and at the end of the term. So that will give us uh, a baseline reading of mindset, but also that will help us to understand if mindset changed at all over the course of the semester. Um, hope we get a lot of participants from a lot of different kinds of schools, uh, from um, from uh, yeah, different kinds of schools and programs so that we can really start to unpack this uh, question of mindset from a, from a quantitative uh, perspective. Yeah, that sounds that sounds great because as you talked about how we often teach intuitively, like that's just resonated with me because so much of our teaching is either based on how we have been taught or our intuitions, right? Um, I'm thinking back to when I used to do melodic dictations or harmonic dictations. I would often talk in between the hearings, be like, well, listen for this, or, you know, you want to kind of be, you know, pay attention to this. And then I'd play it again. And then I'd give a little um, hint or something like that. And I thought I was helping them. And then I came across a study where they did this you know, study on like student responses with listening to direction in between hearings to no instructions and students did better with these zero instructions. The silence was better across the board than someone talking, even if you know, you're know you saying something that you think is helpful. And intuitively I thought, oh, I was guiding them through this modification when in fact I was probably just giving them way too much information. I wasn't giving them time to actually think and listen, you know, audiate for themselves. And if I wouldn't have read that study and if someone actually wouldn't have put that together and uh, kind of questioned those assumptions, I would still be kind of doing some of those probably helping rather than hurting. So I appreciate you doing this work because it's important because we do have so many, so much intuition um, baggage when we go to our own teaching. <laughs> Ooh, TM, <laughs> intuition baggage. <laughs> I like that intuition. <laughs> oh, and what you're describing, um, Paul, and I'm, I so appreciate that is evidence-based practice, right? We expect um, medical practitioners and you know mental health professionals to engage in evidence-based practice. Um, we would we would you know accuse them of malpractice if they weren't <laughs> doing that, right? But somehow in uh, educational spaces, we kind of get away with. Uh, winging it. Uh, I don't mean to say winging it. That's not true. We think very carefully, mm -hmm. right? We engage deeply in our practice, but somehow, uh, you know, I don't know. We, we weren't all trained to engage in this evidence-based mm -hmm. practice model. Yeah, it's true. In, you know, in graduate school, even in pedagogy classes, sometimes we aren't given the tools even to look into the study of teaching and learning which is its whole own thing aside from our specific disciplines. Um, so yeah, for whatever that's worth it, 
it is a separate kind of idea. The study of teaching and learning has its own set of terminology, its own set of, you know, specialties and things like that. And we don't get into that almost at all in graduate study, if at all. Um, I mean, I had two pedagogy courses. I don't think we ever talked about anything like that. It doesn't mean I didn't learn other valuable things, but I didn't read any of that research for sure. I feel really lucky as a psychological scientist because there's so much overlap. Um, so like there's the a Society for the Teaching of Psychology is a division of the American Psychological Association. It's a really robust professional space. Um, and we are doing extremely rigorous um, research on learning processes, like uh, Jen described, the scholarship of teaching and learning. But we already have those tools because it's part of our, you know, kind of base training in the field. And then we just kind of turn <laughs> a few degrees this way and pivot to apply those robust tools to, you know, um, learning and teaching processes. So I, I recognize that um, that's not true for every field, right? But um, collaboration is a beautiful thing. I work in a very collaborative field. Science fields are very collaborative. It's um, not the norm for us to work on our scholarship totally alone. Um, but I know that's not true necessarily in the humanities and other fields. Um, so I would definitely encourage anybody who's thinking like, oh, you know, maybe I want to do some of this kind of work, but I don't even know where to get started. Um, collaboration is, is the key to doing this kind of work for sure. And it allows yeah. you to take the step back. A lot of the stuff that you read, just like Paul was mentioning, it's so specific. It's like, here's the practice of melodic dictation. You know, you're, you're all of a sudden you're out on this pinpointed limb of the tree <laughs> instead of like something that's so more widely applicable. Like, yeah, is mindset malleable? Like what a great question that so many of us can, can use knowing the answer to your study. I mean, that's so exciting. I mean, because you, you go and you do things. And even if I read something, that's the same study. Like if Paul and I read the same study or Jan or, you know, Ben and Fer Furman, the way we apply that's going to be way different. So because my class is going to be way larger and it's a way different setting than a small class at Furman. So the way we even apply those things, when the article is so specific, it loses applicability. Um, in my opinion. So I'm really glad that, you know, the collaboration allows you to take that step back and really reach a lot of people um, with your with your results. It's going to be really exciting. I'm, I'm so excited to see like the end. I'm already wanting to read the end result. I know everyone's probably like that, but I'm definitely in that <laughs> camp now. Yeah, let me say that we're also interested in doing this study. Uh, we're also interested in how mindset correlates with all those demographic uh, questions that we mentioned and institutional questions that we mentioned. But we're also interested in looking about at uh, factors like uh, instructor rapport, like uh, how does that relate with instructor rapport and students' sense of belonging? How are, you know, our, our classes are such... Uh, intermixed spaces in so many different ways. There are so many different factors that impact our students' learning. So we're hoping to unravel uh, or maybe entangle even more uh, some of those, those questions and those factors. Ben was pointing to something um, that I, as a researcher, 
I get really frustrated that no one study can achieve all the goals, right. Mm -hmm. That we have, like, I want to both be able to answer a specific question and to generalize that. (laughs) Um, And it's just not possible as an experimental psychologist. I want to design a really rigorous study with many controls. um, But that can't, you can't do that. And also understand how that works in more real life settings. Mm -hmm. Right. And uh, I tend to do more of kind of the lab based experimental kind of work um, with the understanding, like, oh, I really want to know how this looks in real life, though, because the way a student works, uh, the way they think when they're sitting in a, you know, in front of a computer in a tightly controlled laboratory setting is not how they think or behave, you know, when they're in their dorm room or whatever. Um, So I get really frustrated about that as a, you know, as a practitioner, as a researcher. Well, it depends, Shanna. That's what, what's your answer is. Well, it depends (laughs) if they're, you know, sitting in front of their computer, then yes, but it depends, right? (laughs) And our two different studies kind of look at it from those different standpoints are the study that we're doing with my sophomores at Furman is a very, very controlled environment. I'm the only professor they have. I control not every aspect of their learning, but I control a lot of the factors uh, that go into their learning. Uh, Our broader study that we're launching now, um, uh, I I don't have any control over what these students are doing at their various institutions. Uh, And so hopefully, you know, that will give us some different takes on, uh, on mindset in these different contexts. Oh, sure. Sorry. Go ahead, Paul. I'm dying to ask this question about IRB. Um, I don't know if that's what you're going to, Jen, Um, because I think that (laughs) would be something, I think a lot of people in the humanity, especially music, music theory, history, composition, we are, we are lone wolves. We are in our office, you know, doing our own thing. Rarely do we have human subjects um, and have to go to through a, our university's internal review board. But you've, you've had to do this for your research, Ben. So talk to us a little bit about um, working with the IRB and developing the kind of the study proposal, um, because that's something I think not a lot of music theorists have to do. Yeah, that's something that I have had never done before. Uh, before we did our launched our first study uh, a year ago, and so um, you know, I collaboration is key. If you can be married to a psychological scientist, I highly recommend it. <laughs> Yay! Uh, I'm about it's, to be. <laughs> uh, it, that's right. That's right, Jen. Uh, it's really handy in a lot of ways, uh, but particularly in this way. So, uh, it, but if you if you aren't married to a psychological scientist or just can't find one, uh, then go reach out to a, a social sciences researcher at your university. That's going to be such a great, maybe they'll want to collaborate with you, uh, or if not collaborate, they can at least help you with the process. But our process really started foundationally from sitting down and discussing the kinds of research questions that we wanted to ask. Uh, we started with a with a blank slate and said, this is what I want to know. And we really poked at that and teased that out for quite a while before putting any limits on it. Uh, you know, this, these are the kinds of things that I want to know, the kind of questions that I want to ask, the kind of answers that I want to find. Um, and then there was a lot of negotiation about how we ended up asking those questions because uh, Shanna was such a, a fantastic resource on saying, well, 
Yeah. So this is what you want to know, but this is how we can measure it or how we can't measure it or how we keep our measuring it from being uh, so complex that it's incomprehensible. Right. Because uh, I folks, I know nothing uh, about doing that kind of research uh, confession time. Uh, I know what I want to learn about my music theory classes, but I didn't know how to design a study so that we could effectively, succinctly and clearly measure these kinds of things. So after we sat down and you know, figured out what we wanted to ask. We, it took a long time for us to figure out how to ask that. And there was a lot of negotiation in that conversation as well. That I think that might have been the most frustrating part of this process for me, probably for Benjamin too. Um, just I'm picturing like <laughs> times we've been at a coffee shop together with our, you know, sitting across from each other with our computers, editing the Google doc, you know, and like <laughs> fighting over <laughs> what does this actually say right here? Because Ben's like, I want to know this. And I'm going, how are we, what kind of analysis am I going to do with those data? Right. Shannon's a statistics wizard. She's fantastic at statistics, but uh, you know, there's a limit to her magic. Well, right. I hand her a shaker uh, graph and she has no idea what she's looking at. <laughs> <laughs> I'm lost, right? Uh, and then we, we turn the tables there. Yeah. So, but I mean, but that's also an idiosyncrasy of me. That's how I operate as a researcher. I want to know those things on the front end. What is this research question? How do I turn that into a testable hypothesis? What is the analysis I will need to do in order to? you know, answer that question. Um, not every, you know, social and behavioral scientist operates that way. Um, so, I mean, that's specific to me, but a lot of us do. Because we don't like to get stuck at the end going, huh? <laughs> I actually do I don't do know how data? to analyze these data. Uh-oh. That's how Folks, we can't even agree on how to say data or data. I mean, you know. <laughs> so there's that. Yeah. Uh, but you know that's all that's all sort of uh, meta design stuff, and then it got down to the nitty gritty of actually getting the study approved because it has to be approved, it has to be legit if you're going to do anything with it uh, scientifically, uh, and so there is training that your institutional review board will have you do so that you are behaving in an ethical way with human participants, um, and that training will generally be really thorough. Like I could work with. Uh, prison populations or minors or, or uh, pregnant people. I don't need to do that, but that's part of that training. And that's a really important aspect. Um, the institutional review board's primary goal, and Jenna, you can correct me if I'm wrong here, but the institutional review board's primary goal is to make sure that your research is ethical and that it is not harmful. Is that right, Shanna? Is that fair to say? Yes. So I actually serve on the institutional review board at my institution um, as a reviewer. And yes, our, our job is to ensure that researchers are minimizing risk, uh, risk of harm to their participants, which I mean, you know, the risk of harm is pretty low, probably in music theory, pedagogy research. Um, but we just need to be sure um, and sort of maximizing benefits. Um, it, and often when people are doing scholarship of teaching and learning, they're like, I, I don't know if I need to go through the IRB for this. I mean, these are things I was going to be doing anyway in my teaching. So do I or don't I? You can always consult with the person on your campus who is in charge of your institutional review, review board. And that is the thing you should do. Just check, you know, and if they say, nah, you don't need to. 
um, then great. But in general, kind of a general rule of thumb is, uh, are you interacting with human beings? (laughs) Are you collecting information from humans? Yes. Okay. Step one. Um, Are you collecting data that you even think you might want to share outside of your institution? You know, could you envision you you might want to put together a conference presentation about this or, you know, even publish it, then definitely, yes, you're going to need to go through the IRB um, for this kind of work. And most IRBs will have different levels of review. Uh, So exempt review or expedited review or full review. And I think probably for most music theory studies that that folks might be interested in doing, probably going to qualify for exempt review where there's a really a pretty short application process where you're going to describe what it is you're doing, why you're doing it. You're going to, if you're using a survey, you're going to outline your survey, uh, all the questions that you're going to include describe how you're going to interact. If you have a TA, how the TAs are going to interact with your participants. Um, But then that exempt review is generally a pretty quick process. And studies are generally um, uh, approved for exempt review if there's very little likelihood of harm. Uh, And I think that's, that's the case for most music theory research. Another really important part of the IRB process is developing uh, and engaging in the consent, the informed consent process. Your participants have to know um, not necessarily what your study is about, because sometimes we want to shield that uh, from our participants, but they need to know uh, what it is they're doing. They're answering some questions, maybe. Um They need to know if there are any risks or if there are any benefits, if there are any financial incentives. They need to have all of that information uh, at their disposal before they decide whether or not to participate. Um, And so the IRB process, uh, you know, applying for IRB approval and developing uh, an informed consent document that is as transparent about your study as you can be without influencing your uh, participants' responses um, is a really important part of just minimizing harm and making sure that you are doing everything on the ethical up and up. And something else about this kind of preparation, this kind of work that's often, I think, surprising for people who haven't done it before is that this is very front end heavy. Um, The Institutional Review Board will want to know and see what questions are you going to ask, or they want a description of, you know, what are you doing? What what will your participants experience, basically? And here, research participants are your students. Um, so, and that includes things like, how are you going to recruit, um, you know, participants into your study? Um, so, like, for us, for example, we are communicating with, with you all, with the colleagues in the field, and saying, please, we invite you to share information about this study with your students, to invite your students to participate in this study. We wrote that message and it had to be approved by the Institutional Review Board, that recruitment language. So it's very front end heavy. And that's often surprising, I think, for someone who's never done that before. That's a standard part of my training as a psychological scientist. And I'm a trauma researcher. And so I go super mondo overboard (laughs) when it comes to institutional review board interaction, because um, the work that I do is extremely sensitive. So 
Another really important part of this is if you are doing research with your own students, like I am for uh, for my Furman-based sophomore study, um, if you're doing research with your own students, it has to be very clear uh, that there is no coercion uh, in, uh, in encouraging students to participate. So like I can't know which of my students are participating or not until after I've submitted grades. It has to be very clear that students' grades are not at all related uh, or influenced by their decision whether or not to participate. Students need to know that they can drop out of your study at any point without any sort of a backlash from you at all. So, so I have a couple of TAs who are undergraduate students at Furman uh, who are doing participant recruitment and survey administration. Uh, I, I introduce the TA and then leave the classroom for 10 minutes while my TA does that. And the TA asks the student, please don't uh, speak with Dr. Dobbs about your participation. Please don't tell him um, because because then there might be the possibility of, of coercion involved in recruiting students. And that's especially important if you want to do research with your own students, which I imagine uh, some music theorists might if they're looking at the efficacy of their own teaching practices, which, which is how I got into this. And of course you could always, oh, sorry. No, go ahead. I was just gonna say, I think it would be useful if we were trained more on this type of research because Absolutely. it's certainly valuable um, for us to be engaging in. But go go ahead, Shannon. I was just going to say, you could always collect information informally, right? For, just for your own knowledge, right? And, and if you're doing that, you don't have to do all of this stuff, right? But if you're, if you're that committed to engaging in evidence-based practice, you might as well take the the one like one or two extra steps to to formalize that process, right? And then you're in the position to share what you learn with your colleagues as well. I would not have wanted to gather all of this data uh, without going through the IRB process. And then a couple of years down the line, you know, be like, hey, well, I can talk about this in a symposium that I just saw a call for papers for it because I wouldn't be able to do that because I hadn't gone through the IRB process. So if you're going to go through all those steps to reflect on your own teaching practice, to learn about the efficacy, then go ahead and do the IRB work. And then, you know, if 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 uh, Note Doctors organizes a, uh, a <laughs> symposium on mindset, uh, you know, uh, then I could send my stuff in um, because I had gone through all of that, uh, of all of that process with the IRB and, and gotten that approval from the start. And that's a great I idea. Would say that, that this <laughs> all sounds kind of intimidating if you're just into it. And believe me, having knowing nothing about research design in this sort of way or quantitative methods or IRBs, it was very intimidating to me. Um, and and so Shanna's help was just immensely important. Uh, and so if you're interested in doing this kind of work, reach out to a, uh, a social scientist on your campus, a psychologist, uh, or uh, uh, even people in music ed sometimes have done this kind of quantitative research. So those can be, especially in larger departments, uh, those can be uh, really valuable resources, but collaboration is just so, so important here. So hypothetically, this is just, you know, hashtag asking for a friend. I'm sure no one ever does this, but those of us that submit the proposal get accepted. And then once you board the plane ride to the conference, you start your writing your introductory paragraph. That's that's uh -huh. not going to fly with this type of stuff. It's, like I said, just asking for a friend. That's right. Uh, I mean, uh, yeah, that's, that's not going to fly if you didn't get that IRB approval ahead of time. So, you know. <laughs>
turns into a descriptive sort of presentation. <laughs> it's right. very uh, qualitative, I guess. There you go. These are the things that I would do if I were going to perhaps. Uh, yeah, we we want to avoid that. I don't know anyone that's ever done that in music theory. So, you know, sure, you might as well edit this yeah. out, Paul. <laughs> I don't know anybody who's done that in psychology yeah. either. It's probably not possible there, but. Uh... Yeah, right. <laughs> okay. So I have a question specifically for Shanna because we've talked a lot about collaboration and working across disciplines to create research opportunities. Um, obviously, you two are married. And so that collaboration is a pretty organic one it came out of, you know, already knowing each other and already discussing your work together a lot. Um, but do you have suggestions for us music theorists who don't know anything about processes like this for approaching other colleagues about conducting research of this nature? Definitely. Um, the first recommendation I would have, and this is highly dependent on your institutional setting, is to connect with, um, if you have it, your Center for Teaching Excellence, your Center for Teaching and Learning. Um, you know, larger institutions typically have this kind of unit. Um, so they will be really well equipped and excited to, <laughs> to work with you on this. Um, so that would be like step one, I would say. Um, and if you have graduate students listening, um, I want to make a plug for engaging with that kind of unit um, in your graduate career. Uh, I did that at, at UNT, at University of North Texas. That's where I got my PhD. And uh, that's how we know each other, actually. <laughs> um, I actually, in my last two years of my PhD, worked in the um, Center for uh, the, their version of the Center for Teaching Excellence. And the cross-collaboration, the cross-disciplinary interactions I had with graduate students from all over the university was amazing and wonderful and exciting. Um, and so I, start that as early as you can, I would say. Um, and I know that you have graduate students who are listening, so definitely would nudge everyone in that direction. Um, if you're at a smaller institution and you don't have that kind of unit or that kind of resource available, um, I would reach out to people in the psychology department, sociology department, education. This kind of work is part of our training, you know, in the core work that we do in our field. And so it's just, a, you know, an extra step really to, to apply it to the question that you have in your teaching, in your pedagogy. Um, I would be super excited to have a colleague from across my university approach me and say, would you be willing to work with me on this? I'd be like, uh, yeah, let's do it. Um, and I think that would probably be true of a lot of your colleagues in your behavioral and social science um, departments as well. It's really helpful to know too, that you're used to collaborating. So being approached in that way is probably feels pretty normal and exciting and like, yeah, let's, let's see what we can come up with. Whereas when we're not used to collaborating, it feels like, oh, I'm asking this big thing of someone. When in reality, that's something that you would do regularly with other colleagues. I'm so glad you said that because I, it is such a normal part of the way that I do my work that I don't even think about it. Um, it's just exciting. I even think maybe... Uh, I even think maybe the first time, you know, Shannon and I were having these discussions about, you know, well, how do you know whether or not it fosters growth mindset? I might have 
you know, been like, do you want to do a study thinking that I, you know, not sure entirely uh, that this kind of collaboration that Sharon was going to be excited about it. And she was like, heck yeah. Uh, you know, so, so even uh, we, we've known each other for a long time, but I was a little nervous about reaching out too, just because, you know, as theorists, we're often working in the dark, dusty basement by ourselves, but right. uh, you know, scientists, especially social scientists are not. And so, uh, so I think, I think folks who are interested in doing this kind of collaborative research are going to get uh, good positive feedback. Is it Definitely. too early to ask who's going to be the first author on this paper or is that still <laughs> up for negotiation? Uh, so that's a really important <laughs> point, Paul. Uh, yeah, that kind is, of actually. negotiation mm -hmm. yep. should happen from the very beginning. Yeah, uh, That should not be a negotiation that's going on uh, during the process or after the process is done. Uh, and so early on, we decided that I would be first author uh, and Shanna would be second author. Um, and, you know, that didn't take a lot of negotiating between the two of us. Uh, but we did uh, talk about the level of work that that means since I'm first author and Shanna's second author. So I'm taking the lead on, you know, developing the kinds of questions that we want to do, that we want to ask. Uh, I built our survey. Uh, I started the IRB documents. And I would say that I got us, you know, uh, really far down the line. And then Shanna fixed everything because she knows how to do all of that sort of stuff. Um, but that's what it means to be first author and second author is to, to decide on a balance, to decide on an order, and then to be really transparent and clear about that. You should also, if you're interested in having uh, undergraduate TAs, you should have that discussion or graduate student TAs. Uh, you should have that discussion with them too, um, because their level of work may or may not warrant authorship. Um, uh, and that, but that's something that needs to be transparent really uh, from, from the beginning and not, uh, especially with students, not uh, dangled in front of them uh, along the line. So, so that was a, I think, Paul, you asked it as a little bit of a joke, but that's a really important question to establish authorship early on in the process. It is actually, and I'm glad, Jen, you made your comment a moment ago about disciplinary norms, because something you may not know is that like in psychology, that is a standard part of how we embark on any new project. We have that conversation, order of authorship. What does that mean about the, the my time and effort, my contribution to this project? And we sort of continually negotiate that too. If it needs to change mid-project, that's not unusual. We have that conversation. And so you should know that if you're going to approach, you know, a, a colleague across campus, that that is a normal part of the way that it, at least in psychology, we do this work. It's not strange. For sure. I would not have known that two years ago, but now that I'm engaged to a cognitive psychologist who solely does research, he doesn't teach, he's, he's just a researcher. I now know that that's a critical thing. And it's part of the discussion every time. And he'll be involved in papers that have maybe 26 authors. So where you fall on that list, you know, it might be that you just worked on two or three paragraphs of the paper versus being kind of the lead of a study. So it does really matter. Right. And don't be afraid to have that conversation. It's totally normal for behavioral and social scientists. Well, I have learned a whole heck of a lot. And we're almost out of time already, um, but this has been such a treat to have uh, both of you on the podcast and, and to see you guys. Uh, we do always like to end with some short rapid fire questions. And so, um, Shannon, I promise this won't, well, at least my question will not be related to music theory, 
Okay. But I don't know what Ben and Jen have cooked up. Um, but these are just, you know, short, quick, uh, answers off the cuff. Um, and, uh, hopefully we have a good time with this. Um, I can go first because I think I went last, last time or last, uh, last chat. So, all right. So my question I have, it's, it's a two-parter. So, so, um, so Shanna, this is for you. So what is the one music related topic that Benjamin really digs that you just can't get into? And then Benjamin, is there's the opposite. What is the one thing that Shanna just loves about some psychological concept or topic that she just digs and just like, Oh, this again, it, can you, can you think of maybe one of those things that, you know, that your spouse just loves to get excited about, talk about, and you're like, all right, fine. But you just don't really see it yourself. Okay. This is a little bit of a twist. I hope that's okay. A pivot because this is not something that Ben's necessarily super into or like his area of specialization but all he has to say is like, uh, oh gosh, I'm going to butcher it. Pierre Lunaire. Oh, geez. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, God. that's pretty good. <laughs> Pierre, no. that's hilarious. Oh, no. <laughs> Not the mad clown. Well, and of course I torture you with it. Yeah. <laughs> so that's a fun Does thing. Does he like play it, it like on Spotify or just talk or, about it? Or, you know, it? boop, 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 boop. <laughs> you know, that's all it takes. <laughs> That was very, awesome. I like that. <laughs> Thanks. Sounds very similar. All right, Ben, what, what do you say? <laughs> okay. So my answer is, of course, that everything that Shanna says about psychology is absolutely fascinating. Uh, everything. <laughs> no. Um, so Shanna uh, is super impressive in her statistical wizardry, which I've already talked about. Uh, and I just get none of it. Like, uh, <laughs> You know, I think I knew what chi-square was at one point in my life, um, but but Shanna is just super awesome, and she really loves teaching students about statistics, and I just, it's so far beyond me that I, I tend to, like, glaze over uh, when she's talking about some of the statistics, like, one-way ANOVA, eight-factor, you know, whatever. I'm, I have no idea what's going on. Um, but but really, the stuff that she does with memory and autobiographical memory, false memory, is all just incredibly fascinating. But statistics, ooh. Yeah, that's that's great. That's I mean, you can't have two married academics without having this, like, you know, <laughs> these very particular interests. And, um, and that's why we're doing it. That's why we're in our fields is right. Cause we're excited about these very small things um, that are really important to us. So Ben or, or Jen, take it away. I can have one, Ben, you go. Sure. I was going to ask you to, and I think you both can answer this really well. If you had to give a message to the incoming freshman class of music majors, maybe one sentence or two, what would you say? be open to failing and then be willing to do better. There you go. Failure is not failure. I've been quoted on this before. <laughs> You've been quoted. I love that. Just Failure's on Facebook. Not... It's not in a citation or anything <laughs> like that. I'm not nearly as cool as you are. Oh man, that's a lot of pressure. Yeah. I think, yeah. I mean, I would agree with be be willing to try, try new things, try things that are hard and, uh, and see it as an opportunity to grow and change. Yeah. 
your professors, uh, you know, undergraduate professors are going to be so excited to see you struggle with something and then keep on struggling and continue to work, work, work until you get it so much more than if you stay in your comfort zone. Uh, so be, be willing to fail and then be willing to try to do better. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. Oh, I love that. Good answer. Really good answers. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So I'm going to bring it back around to growth mindset. Uh, having learned about growth mindset, what is an area, something that you've been impacted by the idea of growth mindset for yourself, for your own life, work, whatever? So mine has nothing to do with music. Uh, it has to do with, and I'm sorry, Jen and Shanna, you're going to roll your eyes as soon as I start talking about this. It has to do with running. Uh, I started running, uh, about a year ago. And, uh, so I played football in high school. Uh, you can't see my picture here, but I was a really, really big guy, uh, for, for most of my life. And I started running a year ago and I ran a mile and it was just so hard. Um, and then like, I, the next day ran 1.1 miles, 1.2 miles and got up and my birthday last year, I ran my very first 5k and I was absolutely thrilled about it. Uh, and I was like, you know what? I think I could go farther. So I signed up for a 10k. I did that in December. I did an ugly sweater run in Asheville, North Carolina <laughs> in the mountains. It was absolutely beautiful. Um, and then I signed up for a half marathon and did a half marathon in February. And I have now signed up for a full marathon and I'm going to run my first full marathon in November. And to me, like nothing captures my attitude about mindset and growth mindset than going from this guy who a year ago, last July, could barely run a mile to, you know, I can't run a marathon yet, uh, but I know that by uh, by November, when November rolls around, I'm going to be able to run that marathon. And that to me is just all about growth mindset. I can't do this yet, but I'm going to work at it. I'm going to work really hard at it. It's going to be difficult. It's going to be challenging, but it's going to happen for me. I didn't roll my eyes at all. I have actually found watching that whole process really inspiring. So thanks. There you go. Same. No eye rolls. I'll add one side note is that when I asked the great Wynton Marsalis, and I think he does deserve the great in front of the name. What is your advice to young musicians? Somebody like me, a young trumpet player. This was me just nerding out in front of Wynton Marsalis. And he talked about running. And he said, if you want to go out and run a marathon, go out and run a quarter mile and then the next day run a half mile and the next day run That's right. quarters of a mile. Yeah. And, you know, it's kind of interesting that connection there, you know, there's something obviously to just overcoming that you take it in small chunks and you, you meet that achievable goal and then you feel better about it and you work up to the next one. And it's not easy, but you can get there. Yeah. When I hand students back homework that I've graded, I don't expect for it to be perfect. When they turn it back into me for a resubmission, I want it to be a little bit better. I want them to have gotten a few points back. They're not going to get a hundred when they get that paper back. Uh, everything isn't going to be fixed, but I want it to be a little bit better. Then the next time they're going to start from there. I'm going to, I'm going to grade it. And then I want it to be a little bit better. It's the exact same process. Yep. Yep. Mm -hmm. It's not an all at once. For sure. Shanna, do you have a growth mindset moment? Yeah, actually this is more kind of like a personal skill set area and it's managing my self-talk uh mm. my good friend Jen <laughs> knows all about this the inner landscape and um yeah just sort of uh intervening you know when I'm kind of being mean to myself internally uh 
and this is true for a lot of academics, you know, we're really mm-hmm. hard on ourselves, have a lot of negative self-talk and that's a skill set though, um, that you can practice, you can change, you can grow. And so, yeah, I think, I think this has been helpful in that arena of my personal and professional life. I love that. And for our listeners, when she said that's something lots of academics struggle with, all five of us were nodding. Yes. <laughs> it's a very common thing to feel. Yeah. Yeah. Negative sometimes towards our own abilities and ideas. Yep. Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Well, as we wrap up, can we give a final um, uh, call out to uh, your projects? So if our listeners are interested in uh, participating or learning more about um, uh, your studies, how can they reach out to you? Yeah, so I don't live on social media. Uh, there's nowhere you can find me there. The only place you can find me uh, is at uh, my institutional uh, page. So uh, I'm Benjamin Dobbs, uh, and my email address is benjamin.dobbs at furman.edu. Uh, so that's D-O-B-B-S, uh, and then F-U-R-M-A-N, benjamin.dobbs at furman.edu. Shoot me an email, uh, and I can send you some information about our study uh, and uh and you can maybe consider recruiting your students to be participants in our study, uh, your undergraduate students. Uh, and I would very happily uh, receive those emails. Or if you want some more ideas that you're thinking you might get into scholarship of teaching and learning research, and you want some ideas how a music theorist goes about doing that, uh, shoot me an email and I'm, I'm happy to have a chat um, to at least uh, maybe uh, you know point you in, in some directions that you might consider going. Um, but yep, shoot me an email, find me uh, at Furman's webpage and I'd love to discuss uh, any of this you just made it to the end of another episode of note doctors the music theory and pedagogy podcast don't forget to like subscribe and review the podcast and you can always reach us at note at gmail.com with comments questions or show ideas thanks for listening <laughs>